0: Today's talk is titled, The Degenerative Lumbar Spine, Evolving in Evidence-Based Care. I am a physiatrist, uh, which means I'm board certified in physical medicine and rehabilitation, and I am fellowship trained in spine medicine and interventional spine care. I also have board certifications in pain medicine and neuromuscular and electrodiagnostic medicine. I am currently the chief of the Division of Spine Medicine at the Northwell Uh, spine center within the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. Let's begin by reviewing some basic anatomy, which some of you may be quite familiar with. Uh, Lumbar spine anatomy, if we use this little cartoon, obviously we have the vertebrae, the intervertebral discs, uh, the exiting nerve roots. If we look at the disc in cross-section, we can see that the outer aspect of the disc is labeled the annulus. This is actually a harder a uh, fibrocartilaginous uh, material with very rich nerve endings within it, while the inside is the nucleus. This would be the front, and this would be the back. This is showing the vertebral body uh, in a side view. This cross-section here reminds us of the posterior aspect of the annulus, the lamina and the spinous process, the facet joints known as the zygopathycele joints, and the exiting nerve roots uh, as well. On MRI, we can look at the spine from the side, this would be a T2 sagittal view, again showing the vertebral bodies, the intervertebral discs. Here is a disc with loss of disc space height at the L5S1 level with a little protrusion. And beautifully demonstrated in axial view, also in a T2 fashion, is the intervertebral disc, a better hydrated nucleus uh, here, the facet joints with the superior and inferior articular processes, the fecal sac, nerve roots swimming in this pool of water, or CSF, the psoas musculature, and the exiting nerve roots uh, in the foramen. We're speaking about spinal pain because of how common spinal pain, low back pain, actually is. This actually affects nearly half of the U.S. population in any given year. These pain syndromes are more common in women, and to some extent, and more common in those who are 45 uh, years of age or older. About 30 million annual office visits are are, um, resulting from low back pain presentations. 3 million ER visits and 3% of total uh, healthcare visits in all are resulting from patients presenting uh, with spinal pain. This is very costly for our healthcare system and our country to the tune of $600 billion when direct healthcare costs and lost productivity are considered. It's fascinating to me to learn this as well, that this is actually double the annual cost of heart disease and greater than the combined cost of cancer and diabetes care in the U.S. The leading reasons for lost time in the workplace, you could see back pain and neck pain are two and three in the United States after headaches. Despite how common this is, we're not doing the best job at treating it. This is extremely challenging for patients and for clinicians. For patients, there's tremendous difficulty in terms of access to timely care. By the time the patient ends up in the office of a specialist, there may be multiple visits and multiple um, consultations prior to arriving in the office of a specialist who is best suited to help them. These uh, office visits are expensive. Patients are missing work because of their pain. Diagnosis is often delayed. And oftentimes, an incorrect diagnosis can be assigned And this can result in improper care. And the care we provide very often is not very evidence-based. So you can see that the patient is really up against this uh, when they present with debilitating spinal pain situations. And oftentimes the pain is so debilitating that patients are very scared. They're scared of paralysis because nerves are involved. They're scared of wheelchair dependence. They're scared that their spine will actually fracture. And clinicians who are those asked to treat these patients, are also oftentimes at a disadvantage. Formal spine care training across the disciplines is relatively lacking. The outcome studies that we base our treatments on have conflicting results. We use images whose interpretation and correlation often is poor when it comes to the patient's clinical presentation. When we're treating pain, we also have to consider psychosocial stressors. And much of what we do is elective. Um, it may not be life and death. Uh, For patients, it may seem that way at the time of diagnosis and treatment. But when treatments are elective, patients need to be put at the center of this care model so that they can be educated consumers of spine care and help direct their own care. We're going to go over a little history here about how the advanced imaging of the spine has evolved. Unfortunately, we've learned to see more and more But seeing more and more doesn't always correlate with greater knowledge in terms of what's causing the patient's pain and how to direct care. It was really in the 1920s uh, that myelography, injecting dye into the subarachnoid space evolved, allowing us to highlight on plain radiographs the neural elements of the spine and cutoffs in flow, which might correlate with compression or stenosis. The dyes that we've used have evolved in the past decades, thought to be less toxic, less likely to cause uh, arachnoiditis. CT imaging followed, still the best that we have, to look at the osseous or bony anatomy uh, of the spine. This, too, evolved in the 70s uh, and 80s. Now we can actually use multiplane CT imaging to look at the spine in multiple planes, similar to an MRI. And at times, this can really complicate, even visualization, uh, can, I'm sorry, can really... Uh, Assist in visualization of the the soft tissues and enhance our ability uh, to overall uh, assess segments of the spine when CT scans and MRIs are used uh, in parallel. They can complement each other uh, quite well. MRI imaging uh, was the last uh, to evolve in the 40s and the 70s and really provides us with just superior uh, resolution of soft tissues. Um, and the neural elements uh, of the spine and our ability to characterize uh, pathology through different imaging uh, techniques. Once again, this is showing a T2 sagittal view of the lumbar spine. Here we have an axial view of the lumbar spine. The ability to look at the spine in multiple planes and using different filtering techniques has really enhanced our ability to understand uh, the anatomy of the spine. For example... On this slide, we're looking at edema of the end plates. This can be just a normal finding in the degenerative spine. This is not so normal. This is an infiltrative process affecting the sacrum on a coronal view. The normal signal of the marrow has been replaced uh, by what is a pathologic process affecting the sacrum. Here's where things get tricky asymptomatic individuals as in if we look at 100 people who have no back pain at all and look at their MRIs what are we going to see well what we've learned over time is that we're going to see a lot of stuff that looks like it can be asympt- that looks like it can be symptomatic but these are asymptomatic individuals this actually goes all the way back to the myelograms in the 60s where abnormalities were incidentally noted in patients who were being studied for acoustic neuromas. And the latest studies on MRIs, which followed CT studies in the 80s, have similarly shown that in less than 60-year-old patients, without symptoms, 20% will have a disc herniation. And in 20 to 39-year-olds, degenerative discs are seen in 35% of asymptomatic people. And a substantial abnormality like a large disc herniation or significant stenosis is observed in one-third of people who have no symptoms at all. And if we follow these people over time who are asymptomatic, what we find is that their films get worse, but they don't get worse clinically. So we don't want to treat films. We want to treat people. Here are two individuals who have no symptoms, who have films that look very painful, but they have no symptoms at all. On the left, there is an axial view which shows severe spinal stenosis. The fecal sac should be this big. Instead, it is markedly compromised, almost obliterated by degenerative hypertrophy of the posterior elements and flavum hypertrophy resulting in severe uh, severe stenosis without symptoms. This is a foraminal disc herniation hitting the nerve root at its most painful part where the dorsal root ganglion resides. This, too, is causing no symptoms in this patient. When we talk about what causes pain in the spine, sometimes it's helpful to characterize the pain generators as either mechanical or axial and radicular or nerve root pain. Think of these as the structures of the spine and these as the nerves of the spine. Historically, the sacroiliac joint uh, was thought to be a very common pain generator of the spine. And in some circles, uh, many people will still label lumbar and buttock pain, SI joint or sacroiliac joint pain as a suspected diagnosis. And in the 1980s and 1930s, this really was center stage as what was thought to be the cause of spinal pain in up to 63% of people. Over time, what we've learned is that if we actually anesthetize the sacroiliac joint in patients who are thought to perhaps have sacroiliac joint pain, that the true prevalence of SI joint pain in the chronic back pain population is clearly less than 20%, and in my clinical experience, likely lower than the 18.5%, which is often referenced. What about facet joint pain? We looked at this on the anatomy slides early on, This is a facet joint looked at from behind with a capsule. The facet joints, which are the articulations between adjacent uh, vertebral segments, also called zygopophyseal joints, and the origin of this word is actually a bridging outgrowth. So it's a bridge uh, between these segments of the spine. You can see that there's a capsule. AC is for articular cartilage. There's synovial fluid. These truly are potential pain generators, but when studied using diagnostic injections, we find that likely the prevalence is approximately 15% in the chronic back pain population. The introvertebral disc now appears to be the most common pain generator in the spine. What was learned histologically and through anatomic studies is that there's a tremendously rich nerve supply to the posterior aspect of the disc, and what makes this nerve supply so unique is that it is both somatic from the exiting spinal nerves and autonomic from the autonomic nervous system and the gray ramus. These nerves will recur and return to the posterior longitudinal ligament, to the posterior aspect of the annulus via the sinuvertebral nerve. So you have this very rich nerve supply at the back of your disc which can commonly be injured, torn, or tweaked, if you will. And that nerve supply is extremely potent and both somatic and autonomic, which can often explain that visceral, take your breath away kind of pain that patients describe when they have a twist or a cough and they're laid out in bed. That requires a very potent pain generator. This has been studied in the 90s and using discography where the intervertebral discs were actually provoked, and I'll show you this on the next slide, it was found that perhaps 40% of all pain complaints in the chronic spinal pain population arises from disruption of the intervertebral disc. This is showing you provocation discography, a test that I don't recommend unless you absolutely need it in surgical planning, where needles are put in the disc, dye is put in the disc, We see normal nucleograms here where the dye is contained within a healthy nucleus. And here, if you look very carefully, you see the dye extravasates to the back of the disc. This means that it's leaking out through the torn annulus toward where the sinuvertebral nerve will innervate the posterior aspect of the disc, resulting in significant pain. And what's very interesting is that these discs are dynamic. Think of a painful disc and now think about activities that can change pressure on the disc. We often tell people to sit up straight. Why? Sitting up straight will result in less pressure on your spine than sitting and bending forward. We'd rather you bend with your knees rather than bend at the waist because the pressure on the disc increases dramatically when we forward flex with a weighted object without bending at the knees. And this was demonstrated by putting pressure sensors in the discs of asymptomatic individuals. What's really interesting is that when we sleep at night, there is a 240% increase in our intradiscal pressure, just from fluid shifts in the body, from a lack of loading of the spine. We're actually our tallest by a few millimeters first thing in the morning. And when the disc is pressurized and painful, it means the morning time is a prime time to have discogenic pain. Another very unique study, really one of a kind, uh, was performed by Kuslich in 1991. And what this surgeon did was he wanted to figure out what hurt. And the way he did it was that he he used uh, progressive local anesthesia during surgery to stimulate tissues in awake patients. And what he found was that the fascia supraspinous ligaments are all not painful. Muscle stretching and muscle stimulation also not painful. A nerve root in the spine is generally not painful. A compressed nerve root was. But once the disc was stimulated in the annulus, two-thirds of the patient, two-thirds of the patient population experienced pain like their own pain. The facet joint is typically not particularly painful Uh, as well in terms of the synovium or cartilage, but the capsule of the facet joint could be painful. But really, the site of pain was felt to be the annulus using this stimulation during surgery. And the nerve root is typically quiet unless it's inflamed. So what do we do for our patients? What does the evidence say that we should do in patients with acute back pain? Well, that has evolved over the past 40 years as well. You may encounter patients who say they remember being hospitalized in traction for two weeks in the setting of acute back pain. Well, that's not happening anymore. The studies then evolved to say that two days of bed rest was probably better than seven, and currently our recommendations are get up and go as best as you can, as much as your symptoms will allow, and that will hopefully lead to a quicker recovery. Medicines can be utilized, although... Some of what we've done for many years, including the use of acetaminophen, has recently been shown through a well-designed randomized trial to perhaps not be so effective after all. Anti-inflammatories are felt to be um, helpful for soft tissue injuries and perhaps for acute low back pain as well, not as much so for radicular pain. Muscle relaxants, it is also suggested can be helpful for acute low back pain. I call muscle relaxants people relaxants because very often they're acting centrally. And if you look at cyclobenzaprine, for example, its structure chemically is extremely uh, comparable to amitriptyline. These can be used to help people sleep at night. They can have sedating effects. Opioids, we won't get too into this. Helpful for acute pain, extremely dangerous and ineffective likely, for chronic spinal pain, not to mention the crisis which has resulted from the use of opioids chronically uh, in this country. What's fascinating is that we may have uh, approximately 7% of the world's uh, population in this country, but we use 98% of the world's hydrocodone. And there are about 500,000 deaths in the United States over the past 15 years or so ascribed to opioid dependence, opioid abuse, misuse, redirection of these medications, as well as opioids serving as a uh, gateway uh, to heroin. Steroids, I do use it. Many of my colleagues use it. The studies, which are very limited, don't suggest its efficacy. Anecdotally, I do find it helpful as an anti-inflammatory. Anticonvulsants, such as... uh, Gabapentin uh, are thought to be helpful uh, for uh, neuropathic pain. My clinical experience would suggest that there is a role uh, for these as well. Physical therapy, um, controlled trials suggest uh, that McKenzie-styled therapy, uh, which is something I embrace uh, for my patients, um, is uh, helpful acutely, not so much uh, chronically. Acupuncture, controversial, but the overall body of literature uh, is suggestive. Uh, that this can be helpful when compared uh, to uh, standard uh, care alone. I am a licensed acupuncturist. We have four acupuncturists in our practice. I have found this to be a wonderful addition to our practice, particularly at a time when patients are looking to avoid medications, have exhausted therapy, and are not interested in interventions. Medical massage also, there is some evidence in the literature uh, to suggest that this can be helpful. Let's talk a little bit about nerve root pain, radicular pain. uh, Is pain arising from a compressed or inflamed nerve root in the lumbar spine? These are the classic dermatomal maps. What's interesting, though, in the lumbar spine is that patients don't follow the textbook. A patient with an L4 radiculopathy, for example, is not likely to say, hey, doc, I feel this pain in my lumbar spine, buttock, anterior thigh, knee, anterior medial calf, and it ends at my ankle. Usually, rather, they may just come in with buttock pain or intermedial calf pain. They may have been diagnosed with ankle pathology because their pain was localized here. So we have to remember, when we use our exam in history, that the distribution of pain is only a component of diagnosing radicular pain. We need to look at strength, sensation, reflexes as well, and also remember that we can be fooled. Osteoarthritis of the hip, for example, if we look carefully at this X-ray, we can see how the joint space is lost. The hip is innervated by the femoral and obturator nerves, and referred pain from the hip will extend along their distribution in an L2 to L4 distribution to the anterior thigh and even the knee. That can look like an upper lumbar radiculopathy, like L3 or L4. Vascular pathology, arterial occlusion, which is shown here, arterial insufficiency to the lower limbs can look like a patient with stenosis. The history will help us to decipher if, in fact, the patient is presenting with vascular or neurogenic claudication. When we talk about mechanical aspect of radicular pain, what we mean is that there is compression on a nerve. So let's, let's look at that a little more carefully. In the 1930s, it was shown that compression of lumbar nerve roots uh, does arise from degenerative stenosis. It wasn't until 1934, when Mixter and Barr first identified lumbar disc herniations, that sciatica from nerve root compression and a disc herniation was described. And we realized in the 1950s that some people were born with a tendency towards stenosis, what's been labeled congenital stenosis or congenitally short pedicles. Here is an extrusion at the L5-S1 level. You can see the annulus and PLL are disturbed. Nuclear material is extending caudally, and the nerve root is being uh, compressed. This is showing significant stenosis. Obviously, the fecal sac here is triangular in shape rather than larger and round, and these are two aspects of mechanical nerve root compression. Here's the problem. We're not just dealing with mechanical nerve pain syndromes. Rather, what we have in the lumbar spine are mechanochemical injuries, meaning a chemical component of injury. This was first shown in the 1970s by Marshall. This was published in The Lancet. And what he found was that there are substances that are released at the site of nerve injury and the inflammatory process could actually be improved by the local administration of cortisone. Here's the problem. We're not just dealing with mechanical nerve pain syndromes. Rather, what we have in the lumbar spine are mechanochemical injuries, meaning a chemical component of injury. This was first shown in the 1970s by Marshall. This was published in The Lancet. And what he found was that there are substances that are released at the site of nerve injury and the inflammatory process could actually be improved by the local administration of cortisone. To support the fact that injuries are not just mechanical in nature, multiple studies have shown that there is an inflammatory component of injury. This was shown in the 70s when compression of normal nerve roots were found not to be painful, that there was actually a high concentration of phospholipase A2 noted in lumbar disc herniation injuries. And if we incise the annulus fibrosis in animal models without neural compression, it was found that conduction velocity and capillary stasis would result, and the administration of epidural steroid would help to reverse these processes. What's also fascinating is that disc herniations are not forever herniations. Over time, the majority of disc herniations that we see in the lumbar spine by MRI or CT imaging will reduce in size. But patients get better before the herniations ever go away. When 98 disc herniations were studied, you can see that the largest lesions resolve the most and that after approximately one year follow-up, 60% showed a greater than 30% reduction, and 48% showed a 70% reduction. But patients get better before the herniation goes away. So if they're getting better, but the disc herniation is still there, it tells us that this is not just mechanical. What this is showing is a large foraminal disc herniation on this MRI. After the administration of gadolinium, the disc enhances in a peripheral fashion, indicating that capillaries are actually there to resorb the herniation and this is the result. Here's the sagittal view showing a significant extrusion at the L23 level in September of 2014 and four months later, the exact cut, finding that herniation hard to detect at all. Here it is in cross-section view. This is a patient with a left L3 radiculopathy, the herniation resulting in moderate thecal sac deformity on the left, now just a small bulge or protrusion resorption There was no surgery here. Rather, this is the body absorbing or resorbing, if you will, a disc herniation. That does not mean that the disc goes back where it came from. It just means that it has been cleaned from the epidural space. And if there is an inflammatory component of injury, that would justify the role for epidural injection therapy. These can be done in several ways. What this slide is showing is a fluoroscopically guided selective transferaminal injection The needle tip never goes in the epidural space. The patient is awake. The skin is anesthetized. Dye is put in to show that the L4 nerve has been addressed. This is a foraminal disc herniation, so we want the medicine to drape over the site of pathology. And the studies have shown through a meta-analysis that this is uh, an accepted means of successfully treating radicular pain arising from disc pathology, likely less effective in the setting of stenosis, likely less effective for more massive uh, herniations. Oftentimes, these herniations uh, and and their symptoms can be treated uh, with a single injection with some effect. The average patient will require two to three injections. The steroid which is utilized must be carefully considered in each case based on approach and safety concerns as well as efficacy. Thanks for your attention. I hope this was helpful to you. This slide uh, will be the last, and you'll now hear from my colleague, uh, Dr. Jeff Silber, and he'll speak to you about surgical approaches to the degenerative lumbar spine when such intervention is indicated. Thank you.